You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, a number of years ago, I was at a show and made friends with a fellow named Marshall. Uh, Marshall and I uh, got to be good friends uh, after that. Marshall works at a ministry up in Minneapolis that I I love to death. And it turns out I I love Marshall to death as well. We've become really good friends over the years. We've had slumber parties together. I don't know if grown men can do that, but we did that. Uh, Yes? Okay, fantastic. I love his family. I love uh, his wife. Just really great great guy. Uh, And it was maybe two years ago, three years ago now, I got an invitation in the mail from that ministry that Marshall works for up in Minneapolis uh, that was inviting me and my wife Kelly to a writer's summit, which I thought sounded really great. That's amazing. I love good summit. A thousand folks in a room listen to some speakers and you buy some books at the end and you sing some songs. It's going to be Great, so we got on the plane and we flew up there and did the thing and we showed up and got into the room and I realized I actually don't know what a summit is because there were 12 of us. I was like, oh, this is a different thing than I thought it was. Uh, We gathered up and we all had a meal the first night and we sit down, I got my plate in front of me and I turn to my right and John Piper sits next to me. Now for some of you, that means nothing. Uh, But others of you, I just uh, awakened demonic levels of envy inside your souls, and you need to repent. Uh, But for me, you just need to know, the man sitting right to my right uh, had literally changed my life. Uh, He is on the short list of probably two or three guys that have helped me see Jesus in ways that I hadn't seen him prior. He's helped awaken in me a love for God and an enjoyment of God like I, I hadn't had before. So this moment was like a little schoolgirl up inside Jimmy, like screaming moment. But I played it cool. What's up, JP? Good to see you. Call you Bishop. What, what, you know, I don't know. He told me a joke. It was super weird. The whole thing was weird. I didn't know what to do with my hands. Just like it was a, it was a thing. And this goes on for a couple days. Just me and Kelly and 12 folks and the old pipes. And... Uh, the last day, they surprise us. The leadership uh, goes, uh, hey, surprise, we, uh, we bought all you guys tickets to go see the Minnesota Twins play tonight. And so like in an hour from then, I look up and I'm sitting in a skybox watching the Minnesota Twins play munching on a corn dog next to John Piper. Now, what is my life, y'all? Like, how, how did this, that's all I could think. How did this happen to me? I'd written stuff for this ministry, but I hadn't, it wasn't that good. And, and I didn't write that much stuff, right? I didn't write, like, you're one of 12 folks in a room good, right? And there I am. I'm, I'm just doing the thing. And, uh, and all I can think is, how did I get here? And the only answer that I could come up with that, that uh, made any sense to me was, I had a friend. I had a friend who had access to the one I loved, and he opened up a way for me to come inside, and I said yes. That's the only way I could make sense of that event. I knew a guy with access to someone I loved who made a way for me, and I said yes. Now, why do I tell you that story this morning? Well, I tell you that story because in many ways, what I experienced that weekend is the exact situation that many Christians in the first century church found themselves in. Many of them were Jews, and they were used to a certain um, level of distance between them and their God. And then 
Jesus Christ, God himself, shows up on the scene and blows up all of their paradigms, right? Everything changes. Suddenly, the claim is that in Christ, they have unlimited access to God, the one that they love, that if, if you tether yourself to this man, it will open up for you a world of joy that you knew nothing about before. That's amazing. And, and if you're trying to make sense of what the New Testament is doing, in many ways, it's trying to do that kind of work. A lot of the books in the New Testament are written to help us sort out what this new normal with our God is. That's what it's doing. And that's definitely one of the things that the book of Hebrews is doing, which is the book we're in today. One of the questions being sorted out in the book of Hebrews, and there's several, but one of the questions is just how good is this access? And how do we handle it? That's, that's one of the things that, that the book of Hebrews is trying to help us with. Now, I want to show my cards real quick. I picked this passage on purpose today because I think this question is uniquely relevant for us as a church. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but, but life is a little weird right now, right? About six months ago, the earth exploded. And now we all wear masks at Applebee's. It's the weirdest thing. I don't know how we got from the, but here we are. Like COVID-19 has changed the game for us. And there is a question now that's on the table. Many, many of us are thinking about this question for the very first time. Haven't thought about it before. But it's a question that the pandemic, I think, in some ways presents to us. And it's this question. How much does this thing really matter? How, how, how much does this matter? How lucrative is this? How important is it that we gather, that we do this thing? What is this thing that we do called church? What is, what is, what is, these are the questions that are coming on the table for us, and many of us are dealing with them for the very first time. And they're big, life-defining questions. And I think this passage this morning is going to help us answer some of them. So here's today's big project. I want, but this is my, this is my hope. I want you to leave here breathless about the access you have to the presence of God. And I want you to take that access and exploit it for your joy and for the joy of your brothers and sisters. That's what I'm hoping to do. So that's, that's, those are my cards. That's the aim this morning. So let's talk about the access we've been given and tease out some of the applications. If you have your Bible, get it out. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. <clears throat> verses uh, 19 and following. It says this, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way which he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Now stop right there. I knew writing this sermon, this would be the toughest moment in the sermon for me because I have to figure out a way in like three minutes to help you see that this is one of the most stunning passages in your Bible. It is breathtaking. Let me, let me put it to you like this. If you were a first century Jew and you read those three verses, you would have blacked out you feel, like maybe you don't feel, you, you need to know that would be their experience if they read this. Here's why. The, the great existential problem in the Bible, the great existential problem in your life, my life, in the universe is this. Our sin has separated us 
from the presence of God. Our sin has separated us from God. And that's not just like some kitschy Christian cliche that we say to evangelize people. It's an actual fact. We and him are not cool anymore since Genesis 3. The fall happened and we've all been corrupted in such a way that his perfection and our imperfection cannot dwell together. So we are unholy. He is infinitely holy. We're unrighteous. He is perfectly righteous and pure and blameless and beautiful. We, we love sin. Can we just be honest? He hates sin. He hates it. He loves righteousness. We are not like him anymore. He cannot dwell with us now. It is a problem. Don't believe the lie that our culture tells you that if there's a God out there that mostly all he wants to do is give you bro hugs and high five and be your best friend. It's not true. God is not your homeboy if you are in sin. You feel me? He's not like Santa Claus or like a, like a teddy bear. God is holy and he's perfect and he's righteous and he's pure and he's blameless. And although he's the most valuable, precious person in the universe and you would love to be in his presence if you knew truly who he was, you can't because you and I are corrupted. It's a problem. Do you feel the problem? This is the existential problem in the world. As soon as you come to terms with this, your life is going to be able to get sorted out way quicker. If you don't get to come to terms with this, you're going to have a problem. You're going to have a problem. So the, the first five books of your Old Testament are dedicated to spelling out what God has done to let us reconnect with him. Because the only way this gets fixed is if God in his kindness does something to fix it. And so that's really the, the, the movement of the Bible is how is God going to fix the problem, right? And so that, that's what the first five books of the Bible are doing. And if you've read much of the Old Testament, you know this, the, the process by which we can get nearer to God's presence is nothing if not thorough, right? Leviticus, Numbers. Need I say more, right? If you've ever read them, you're like, what book is this? This is a manual? I don't know what's happening here, right? It's intense. It's elaborate. For you and I to be able to be near God in the Old Testament, there is a very particular recipe to follow, if you will. You feel me? Like, um, like the place you met with God. You can just, he's not just... You, you have to go somewhere if you want to be in the manifest presence of God. And that place, as soon as Solomon builds the temple, is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the locale by which the people of God can get in closest proximity to the presence of God. Three pilgrimages a year will get you there, but it's not just Jerusalem. It's not just like anywhere in Jerusalem. It's in the temple in Jerusalem, right? The building that God uh, had Solomon construct where his presence would dwell. But it's not just the temple itself. It's not just like the outer court, the inner court. It's, it's, there is a space inside the temple, right? You go inside and there's the holy place. But wait, just a second. It's not just the holy place that, his God presen that God's presence is. It's past that. There's a veil that blocks the holy place from a room called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And behind that four-inch thick veil, there's a box. Now, that sounds weird to me and you modern people, but it wasn't weird to them. That box was called the Ark of the Covenant. Think Indiana Jones, right? It's sitting there behind the thing, and on it is a lid. The lid is called the mercy seat. It's made entirely out of gold. It has two cherubim facing each other. 
other. And on the top of that lid, in that locale, on that box, in that room, in that temple, in Jerusalem, is where the presence of God would meet with mankind. So particular. Do you feel that? But now don't get it twisted. Okay, maybe we know the spot. Now maybe I can just go knock on the front door and just say, hey, can I, you know, spend time with the Shekinah glory of God for like 30 minutes? You can't do that. In case you thought you could do that, oh, you got to be a particular person now. You got a particular place. Now you got particular people. If you were a Gentile, man, there is a, there's an outer court for you guys. Let's usher you this way. Everybody else, the Jews, they had more access to the presence of God. They can get into that outer court area. But if you, if you were a Jew and you thought you wanted to go inside, no. No, bro, you had to be a particular line of the Jews. You had to be a Levitical priest to make it inside the doors of the temple itself. So you could go in, but you had to be a priest. And by the way, when you did that, you had to have certain vestments and wardrobe and garb to get in the door. You get in the door, and if you're a priest and you want to get behind that four-inch curtain, the veil, no thank you. It's not going to happen. For you, the only way you get behind there is if you are the high priest. you got to be the priest of priests to get back there. And that guy only gets to go behind the veil one time a year. One time a year, one day a year, on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, he gets to go behind the veil. And let me just be clear, what he's doing behind the veil is not bringing a Snuggie and a Bethmore Bible study and doing a little Devo. That's not what's happening. He's bringing blood, and he's sprinkling it on the altar to atone for the sins of the people. It is a thing, y'all. This is what it looked like to meet with God in the Old Testament. Do you feel this? Access was limited. You feel that? You know what you should be feeling after you hear all that, exhausted. You should feel exhausted. And that would be an appropriate feeling. Because I think one of the things that, that the Old Testament is accomplishing in those first five books of the Bible is to help you really feel the, the massive distance there is between your unholiness and the perfect holiness of God. It takes this to get there. It takes a priesthood and a building, and a sacrificial system, and laws. It takes that to get there. And even then, it's a guy a year who gets to actually be in the manifest presence of God. Access was limited. <clears throat> and it's into this cultural moment, into this historical moment, that a little baby is born to a virgin peasant girl named Mary. And they give him the name Jesus, and he grows up perfect. And he honors God perfectly. And he honors his mother and father perfectly. And he does all things well. And then, as he grows up to be a man, he performs signs and wonders and tells about the kingdom of God. And one day, he crawls up on a wooden cross at 33, and he dies. And when that man, Jesus Christ, expired on the cross, everything changed. Everything changed. And it's with that backdrop that the writer of Hebrews is writing. 
He, he just spent nine chapters basically doing what I just did, unpacking what the systems of the Old Testament were for interacting with God and how Jesus was the complete fulfillment of those systems such that if you have Jesus, you now have access. That's what he's doing. And he, and he concludes those thoughts with this moment in, in Hebrews chapter 10. And here's what he says. Now we're back in the text. Verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Do you feel how much more shocking that is now that we have the, the backstory? I have confidence to go into the place that no other human on earth except one guy could go in just one time. I, I and everybody reading this has confidence in Christ to just roll in and be with God, yes, you do. You have confidence to enter the holy places. When they heard holy places, they would have been thinking of the, the place where God's presence dwelled. What's the reason, though? Why do I have confidence? The text says right here, by the blood of Jesus. All of those Old Testament sacrifices, they were, they were simply foreshadowing the, the final thing that was Christ. Christ's blood accomplished what all the sacrifices could not in such a way that it is over, it is finished once for all. Jesus has paid our fine. He has done it by his blood. He's the final sacrifice slain for you. Verse 19. Verse 20, by a new and living way, which he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. So you remember the veil of the temple, that four-inch thick curtain that hung there in the temple? So you're probably familiar with this in the Gospels. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil, it said, of the temple was rent in two, split in two, ripped in two, top to bottom. And we're getting a commentary on that moment here in verse 20. And the commentary is this. Hey, that veil was a shadow of a real thing. And the real thing is Christ. Christ's body, as he bled out for us, it was like his body was torn in two. And that temple curtain symbolizes his body being torn in two. Now get this picture. What, what does this mean for us? If the place I most wanna, wanna go to is the presence of God, and if that presence of God is behind that veil, and if I wanna go there right now, how do I get there? You see, this is beautiful. If I want to get to the presence of God, the writer is saying, I have to go through the person of Jesus. I go through the person of Jesus to get to God. That's what you need to see. He's the final veil torn for you. Verse 20, verse 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so he's not just the final sacrifice, he's not just the final veil, he is the final great high priest over the house of God, which means he intercedes for each one of us and he represents us to God. This is a very big deal. Here's a summary sentence. These first three verses, here's, here's what we're talking about. You have, you wanna write something down? You, you can write this down. You have, like never before in history, you have, unimagined access to the presence of God through the accomplishments of Jesus. Gosh, that's a lifetime worth of treasuring, isn't it? That's an eternity worth of treasuring. You have, like never before, unimagined access to the presence of God through the accomplishments of Jesus. The law couldn't get you in. 
The priest couldn't get you in. The sacrifices couldn't get you in. But Jesus could get you in, and he did get you in. Therefore, that's the logic of verses 19 through 21. You see that? That's what he's doing. Therefore. Okay. Therefore what? If that's the case, if I've got that top security level clearance into the presence of God, if my name's on the list at that exclusive party, therefore what? Well, it seems pretty obvious, but he's gonna give us three therefores. Therefore, how do we respond? Three things the text tells us. What do we do with this access? We come inside, we stay inside, and we help our brother do the same. I'll say that again, so if you wanna write that down, you can. We come inside, we stay inside, and we help our brother do the same. That's what the text tells us. Let's look at it right now. Verse 22. All of that just happened. Remember, that's the backdrop. This, <laughs> those epic three verses. Since Jesus is all these things for us, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. What? Verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. You have the access. What is the most logical thing in the universe now? You go inside. That door that you've always wanted to be behind is open. You go inside. You step in. You get close. Come inside, he's saying. Draw near with a true heart. And listen to this. Look, look how he tells us we get to come in now through Christ. So we draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. This is gonna be a gift to hopefully many of us this morning. Do you know that when you come in to the holy presence of God through the torn body of Jesus, that his blood washes your conscience clean? You don't ever have to have another condemning thought about yourself in the presence of God. That is breathtaking. You don't ever have to have another condemning thought about yourself because God has no more condemning thoughts about you. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus this is what Jesus, his blood, has done for us. And it goes on. And our bodies washed with pure water. Do you know that if you have defiled your body with sin, and some of you, when I say this, your ears perk up and your heart sinks because you know that's me. That's me. I have done things that would shock you. If you have defiled your body with sin, do you understand that if you come into the presence of God through the torn body of Jesus, that your body is washed with pure water? You're not dirty anymore. You're not dirty anymore. You need to hear that. If you've been living under a, a, just a, a wet blanket of condemnation, you're not dirty anymore. You may have made terrible, shameful decisions in your past, but you're washed in Jesus. This is the preciousness of this text. Come inside. 
That's the first invitation. The door is open. It's the most reasonable thing in the world for you to do is step in, come inside. Now, what do I mean by that phrase, come inside? Well, it's a, it's a little artsy to say it that way. It? It's not exactly clear. It's a little 30,000 feet. What do you mean boots on the ground? Like, how do I come inside, Jimmy? Well, I thought as I was prepping the sermon that I'd write down like a bunch of ways to explain that to you. Like, hey, here's 20 ways to come inside. And let's, you know, but I, I didn't. I decided not to do that. I, I think that, um, I think there's a better way to give you a sense of this. Uh, I, and I'm gonna do it by, give, by just giving you an illustration. We'll see if this works. I tried it first service. Um, uh, this is gonna require you guys. So uh, audience participation for a moment. Uh, by show of hands, who would say this of yourself? Dude, I love sports. Sports fan, you're looking at him or her. Hands up, okay, yes, yes, okay, great. You, sir. Uh, you didn't expect this moment. You would have sat further back if you thought this was, uh, this was you. Um, can I ask you a question? Please say yes, because uh, we're on camera. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah, you. Yeah, uh-huh. uh, so uh, think sports for a moment. Think your favorite athlete. Think, who, who is that guy or girl that's like, if that person's on TV, I'm on. If that person's in my town, I'm there. Who, who, who's that person? Take your time, we're not doing anything important up here. Yeah. Uh, all right, so this one's kind of out there. Okay, great, give it to me. Uh, but Rodgers and Dollhouser, who beat Collie Ball, anyone else? Anyone else give me a, a name? What was that name? Ro- Rodgers and Dollhouser, they're a pair. Okay, this is gonna hurt my analogy. Um, this is gonna hurt my analogy. We're gonna go with Rodgers, because I can say that. Is that a guy? Great. Okay, here we go. <sighs> Rogers, first name? That's his last name. What is his first name? That's great. He's just, he's just Rogers. He's like Madonna. <laughs> Roger, what sport is this? Volleyball? Okay, I know nothing about sports. It's great. Uh, Rogers, tomorrow, buys the house next door to you. And that day, you get a knock on your door, and it's Rogers. And he says, hey, neighbor. He probably doesn't say it like that. Hey, neighbor. I don't know. I don't know how volleyball players talk. <laughs> hey, neighbor. Uh, I'm your neighbor now. And uh, I, just, I just wanted to come say hi. I brought you muffins. And I, uh, uh, I wanted to tell you something. I got a second job. And my second job is just hanging out with you. I just, something about you, bro. I like you. I thought maybe we could hang together. Question, would it be hard for you to figure out ways to spend time with Rogers? That's a no, he said no, in case you didn't hear. Said no, no, of course it wouldn't be hard for you to find, find ways and time to spend time with, why? Because it's not hard to orient your life around someone you love. That's not hard to do. You don't need a how-to list of how to spend time with some, someone that your heart is all about. You don't have to do that. You just go, yeah, I could have 20 kids and I'm still gonna make time for you, right? 
I could have three jobs and I'm still going to work this thing out. That's why I don't want to give us a to-do list here. And that's one of the reasons I think the text doesn't give us a to-do list. Because I think verse 19 through 21 is meant to awaken in us so much love for this God that would do that for us that we can sort out the rest later. The how-to guide, I don't need. I just need love for him. That's what I... I'm hoping for you that that love for God would so grow that you, that you don't necessarily need like a, a recipe sheet of like how to do this thing. You just go, wait, his presence, I can, I can be in his presence. Cool, uh, yes. That's the person I want to spend my whole life with. Y- yes, I'll talk to him. Yes, I'll talk about him. Yes, I'll, I'll read his word. Yes, I'll, I'll do whatever it takes to be in his company. That's what a heart does that truly loves a person. You don't need a how-to list. When you love them, you just come. Now, this is why I think it's such a tragedy when we don't. Uh, You know what I think the saddest sentence in the world is? I sat down yesterday and I tried to write it down on paper. Tried to write what I think the saddest sentence in the world would be. Here's what I wrote down. I had access to the one I was made for, and I wasn't interested. I think that might be the saddest sentence in the world. That the door was open, (laughs) he's right there, I can have him. But Instagram's awesome. Shame on us. If that's us, shame on us for filling our lives with silly little things when all the while this great big thing called God himself is there, like A.W. Tozer says, waiting to be wanted and we don't want him. I think the Old Testament saints are gonna stand in judgment against some of us one day because they had nothing like the access we have to God, and they still came to him. May that not be us, church. The veil is torn. The veil is torn. That should hit you. The veil's torn. I can be with the one I love, or do you love him? We have to come. We have to come. It's ludicrous if we don't. Come inside. Some of you have never done that, by the way. I just want to speak to that person real quick. Some of you, you're watching now or you're here in the room and you've always watched from the outside in and you've never understood this thing we call Christianity and maybe by God's grace the Holy Spirit has unlocked something in your mind this morning and you, you realize for the first time, oh, I, I don't just like understand the data of it anymore, but I, I want it. I want him. I never had that. I want him. Come to him this morning. Come inside this morning. I don't even have to stop preaching. You can just, as I'm preaching, just talk to God right where you're at. Just say, I've rebelled against you, but you made a way, and I want that way. I want to come in through Jesus, through the torn veil. I want the presence of God. That's you. You can do that right now, right where you're at. Isn't that amazing? You don't have to go anywhere. You can go right here and come to him. But come inside. That's the very first way that we exploit our access to God. It seems obvious, but that's what the text says. Come in. Come inside. Here's the second thing Hebrews tells us. After you come inside, stay inside. 
After you come inside, stay inside. What do I mean? Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. We are being told not only to enter God's presence, but to do everything we can to stay in God's presence. That word hold fast there, that phrase there, it's actually an amazing phrase. It's the same phrase used in Acts 27 to talk about a ship fighting to hold its course as the winds of a storm are battering it down. Same phrase. Hold fast. It's like the writer saying this. You grab onto that wheel and you point yourself north toward Jesus and you hold on no matter how hard the wind blows. That's what he's saying. And and I think he's right to be saying this right now because if you know anything about the historical context of this book, you know that wind is starting to pick up some speed for these folks. Most scholars think that the book of Hebrews was written sometime in the mid-60s AD to a group of uh, Jewish Christians in Rome. Now, that would have meant that Nero was the Caesar at the time. He was reigning in Rome, and just about the midpoint of the 60s is when Nero was ramping up his persecutions of the church. So it wasn't full-born like it was in the late 60s, but it was on its way to being really intense, and we know it was getting that way because the book of Hebrews starts telling us that they were actually experiencing persecution even now. Later in the book, it's going to say that their property is being stolen, that their, stu- that their stuff is just being jacked by the government. It's saying that some of them have, have been thrown into prison. Like, this is the situation for them. It's getting harder and harder for these people to hold to Jesus without consequences. And so he tells them, hey, you grab onto that wheel and you hold fast because the wind's blowing. I know it's blowing. And some of you are tempted to let go of this thing. Don't you do it. Don't you waver. And can I just say this? That, that was back in AD 65. But the reality is the wind blows hard now, right? The wind is blowing in our church in so many different ways, through different forms of persecution and missed opportunities, by, because some of you have held the line for Jesus and been bold in speaking your faith. You've missed that upward mobility maybe at your job. I know personally many families in this church who have just lost really close loved ones, and it's breaking their heart. I know folks who are about to lose loved ones. I know folks who are about to be the loved ones lost, and it's just it's, it's mind-blowing the amount of suffering that, that a church family, no matter the size, experiences. The wind is blowing here. And I just want to encourage you as one of your pastors, hold on to that wheel. 19 through 21 is true. It's still true for you. Cling to Jesus. It's better. It's better than letting go of the wheel and watching it spin as the wind blows you into despair. It's not worth it. I know it's hard, but we have to stay the course. And it's because this life is hard, and it is, amen? It is hard that the writer gives us not just one exhortation or two, but he gives us a final and third one, and it's this. Come inside, stay inside, and then help your brother do the same. Because life is hard. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So it's not just enough that you and I come inside. It's not just enough that we stay inside. But the text actually says we have a responsibility to the other saints of God, to our brothers and sisters. You actually are, according to the Bible, your brother's keeper. 
Did you know that? You have a responsibility to the person on your right and your left behind you and in front of you. They, they matter to God in such a way that he's saying, I need you to care for them too. You care too. We're responsible for, for others in, in, in that way. Now, how do we do that? That, that word stir one another up is, is an interesting term. It's a, it, it could literally be translated aggravate. Isn't that funny? Or provoke or incite one another. It's the, it's the word used in Acts when Paul and Barnabas split up on their missionary journey because there was such a sharp disagreement between them. Like so the, the idea is uh, make others blood boil for the things of God. Right? Incite them to love and good deeds. I think that's a, that's a funny way to, to say that, but that's what he's saying. Aggravate each other into loving God and serving others. But how does that look? Well, he doesn't leave us in, in the dark. He spells that out, how, how that looks. Here's how. This is going to blow your mind. This is straight from the text. I didn't make this up. Here we go. Go to church. That's what he says. Is that the most Christian thing I've ever said up here? Go to church, y'all. That's, that's what he says. Look at verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So apparently some of these Christians in, in the midst of that wind blowing in the storm, tossing them, they were letting go of the wheel and they were bailing out. And some of them, the way they were doing that is they weren't gathering anymore. So they stop their gatherings together. He's looking at them. He's saying, hey, don't do that. It's not a good practice for you. Your responsibility is to stir each other up. So don't stop the opportunities to stir each other up. Keep meeting together so you can encourage one another. That's just what the text says. Now, obviously, he wasn't just talking about Sunday gatherings, right? But he certainly didn't mean less than that. Right? We need to be physically around each other so we can encourage each other to, to stay the course. And look, I know this pandemic has like thrown us all for a loop, man. It is hard. And if you're watching at home and you're doing that because of COVID reasons, man, more power to you. Yes and amen. I totally understand that. Like, it, it makes sense. There is wisdom in not being here. I get that. This is a unique season in the, the life of earth, okay? So, so yes to that. Uh, I, I'm, this is not like church shaming. All that I'm trying to say is the text is clearly saying it matters that we meet together. And forsaking that will be to our detriment. Does that make sense? Letting that go will hurt us. It won't enable us to encourage one another to love in good deeds. Um, let me give you an illustration of this to help you make sense of this. So I started seminary this year uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, j just up the road, and I'm taking some courses on campus uh, right now. And this week, one of the guys in our class came up to uh, a group of us after class, and he just had an honest moment with us, which I, I loved. He, he walked up, and he just said, guys, I don't think I can make it. This is, this is week two, right? I don't think I can make it. I think, I think I'm probably out. This is too crazy. And, and you know what? He's right. It's crazy. This is easily the hardest thing I've ever done. The class that he was referring to is Honors Greek 1 with Dan Wallace. Dan Wallace is the foremost Greek New Testament manuscript scholar in the world. 
And this is his honors class. It is uh, talked about on campus as one of the hardest classes at Dallas Seminary easily. To give you some category for this, this was Wednesday for me. Wednesday, I'm not lying, I studied for one class's homework assignment 10 hours. 10 hours, y'all. Pray for your boy, okay? I'm not going to make it. I'm telling you, it, it is so wildly hard. And here we are in one of the hardest seminaries and one of the hardest classes in what our professor says is one of the hardest weeks of the year. So yeah, you'd be crazy if you weren't looking for an escape door, right? How do I get out of this thing? That's what he was saying to us. And I just remember it was such a sweet moment because us three guys got to kind of circle up around him and just feed him truth and encourage him. Brother, hey, look, dude, you are right. It is hard. But let me just say this. If you can stick in this for even just this semester with Wallace, you will have more facility with the Greek language than most pastors do in America. Think about how that will serve your congregation two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now. Think about that. Stay the course. We started a study group together. We started a text thread together. It is the nerdiest text thread you've ever read in your life. I have a Greek keyboard on my phone now. This is the thing that we're doing. Now, we did all that, and I just remember it was such a sweet moment at the end of it. We said all those things to him and encouraged him, and he just sighed. He just said, you're right. Okay, okay. I'm going I'm to stay in it. I'm going to stay in it. Folks, that's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. We have these wonderful promises out in front of us in, in 19 through 21, but we're surrounded by hard, right? We have a world that's opposed to us. We have an enemy that's opposed to us. We have our flesh that's opposed to us. And I'm just telling you, you can't do it by yourself. It's not enough for you to just believe verses 19 through 21. You need to do it in community. Do you see that? That's what the text is saying. You will not make it if you're not in community. I need you guys to sing with me today. I need to hear you in that responsive reading say Psalm 108 out loud with me. I need to hear that. You need to hear each other say. You know why? You know why this is true? Because you might wake up tomorrow and not want to do any of it and not feel anything. Right? You guys, you're humans, right? You wake up not bursting with excitement about spending time with the Lord instantly when you wake up, right? I'm stepping on Legos. I just hate my life as soon as I get up, right? It's, how, do we, how do we do it? I'm, I might not wake up and, and, and want to love God and love others. I might wake up tomorrow and have no desire to do good works, but you might, and you might, and you might. And when we gather, I get to hear you believe all the things that I'm struggling to believe today. And that's what you're doing here. That's what you're doing in your home group. We're gathering so that we can rest on the shoulders of each other's faith as we all collectively trust the promises of verses 19 through 21. We need each other. Do you feel me on that? Can I get an amen with that? Yes, we need each other, church. And let me just say this as, as we're closing. If you don't feel like you need that, and, and you're ready to kind of shirk off this responsibility of caring for your brother, there's a consequence that is haunting for you at the end of that. I want you to look with me at uh, the last set of verses. Verses 26 and 27, it says this. For if we go on sinning deliberately 
after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, there is a, a ton to unpack and say about this, and we do not have time. I, so I just want you to see one thing in those verses, one thing, and it's the word for. For, it begins with for. For means what I'm about to say might happen if what I just said doesn't happen. I never saw this connection until I started studying this this week. The stakes are as high as they could possibly get. Let me put it like this, candidly. You pulling out of community will most likely be a spiritual death sentence for you. That's what the Bible says. Conversely, though, let me encourage you, you digging in deep with these people here, you going the long haul with them, you plugging into good gospel community, being in home groups, gathering on Sundays if you're able, you doing those types of things will likely lead to your eternal flourishing and the flourishing of those around you. Isn't that beautiful? That's what I want for us. That's what I want for me. I don't want to tap out. I need you in my life. You need me in your life. We need each other in our lives. We need each other, y'all. I, I need with you to, to hear the scripture read out over us. I need sermons preached over my heart. I, I need to be in small groups that are calling out my sin. I, I need to sing the songs of God with his people. And in fact, that's how we're going to end the service. I, I just want us to sing together as a congregation. When we sing together, I say this all the time when I'm leading, it is not a private devo time for you. This is not just me and God, audience of one. You are singing to God with each other. In fact, Colossians and Ephesians tells us we're singing to each other. You need to hear me sing this song. I need to hear you sing this song so I can rest on your faith. So here's what we're going to do. Let's stand up together. And we're just going to do this as a church family. No, no pomp and circumstance. We're just going to sing out the truth of God from, from a song that I fell in love with in college. The words are going to be on the screen for you. Just meditate on the truth of God in these words. And let's delight in him together. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. Sing it out. My name is graven on his hands. My name. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands. No tongue. No tongue can bid me thence. Depart. No tongue. No tongue can bid me thence. Deep. When Satan tempts me to despair. When Satan tempts me to despair. And tells me of the guilt within. Upward I look and see him there. Through the veil who made an end of all my sins.
Because the sinless Savior died, my sin.